I don't know about all of you, but I am absolutely a fan of Oliver Berkman's and his column, This Column Will Change Your Life, which appears in The Guardian every Saturday. And I have devoured many of them, but I have not obviously devoured 4,000 of them, 4,000 weeks. This is the number of weeks, Oliver says, that we are all going to be alive. And basically it's, I think, uh, a general prompt to say, well, what are you going to do with them? How do, how do you make the best of them? What's the, you know, this is a finite span, something we probably don't think of enough. So he has now written a book called 4,000 Weeks, which is based on all the things he has written about, and which is a, essentially, I don't know if the right word is guide, but it is a way to tell us how to get the most out of our lives. So Oliver, we're so thrilled to have you with us. And I know you're now back in the UK from having been living in the States. So welcome from Yorkshire and over to you. Thank you very much. Um, I'm, I'm so grateful for this opportunity to talk about a topic that I'm completely obsessed with. So, so back in 1908, the, the novelist and journalist Arnold Bennett wrote a short book that some of you um, might have read. It's called How to Live on 24 Hours a Day. And he writes near the beginning of the book that he'd recently seen a newspaper article discussing, quote, the question of whether a woman can exist nicely in the country on 85 pounds a year. And he goes on, I've also seen an essay, how to live on eight shillings a week, but I have never seen an essay, how to live on 24 hours a day. And it's a funny observation, of course, because on the one hand, we all already live on 24 hours a day, whether we like it or not. So it doesn't seem like we would need any advice on how to do that. But on the other hand, at least if you're anything like me, my goodness, do we need advice, right? Because one way or another, it either feels like 24 hours isn't nearly enough, or alternatively that it ought to be enough, but that for some reason you're not using them in the way that you know would actually be most meaningful. Bennett said that he was writing for, quote, my companions in distress, that innumerable band of souls who are haunted more or less painfully by the feeling that the years slip by and slip by and slip by and that they have not yet been able to get their lives into proper working order. I find that so relatable, this sense of like not quite being on top of things, not quite having things sorted out so that real life somehow hasn't quite really begun yet, which obviously gets more absurd as a thought the older that you get. And it's really fascinating to me that this thought seems to have preoccupied the Edwardians like it preoccupies us now. But while Bennett expresses this problem so well and this feeling so well, I can't agree with him on his solution because he basically just seems to think that if you, all you need to do is like when you get home from work at about half past five in the afternoon, all you need to do is sort of buck your ideas up fight the feelings of tiredness that you're experiencing and make time then for some edifying activity for you know stamp collecting or reading ancient Roman history or, or learning about botany or something. Alternatively, he suggests you could get up earlier in the mornings instead and the book even contains instructions on how to make a cup of tea in case you're up before the servants. Obviously, there are a few things that are wrong with this picture that bear the mark of the time he was writing. Most obviously, the idea that you might have servants to make your tea. And more generally, it's pretty obvious throughout that he's only really talking to middle class, upper middle class men. But there's a deeper and more timeless problem here, I think, too, which is kind of one way into what I'm trying to explore in my book, 4,000 Weeks. He implies, basically, that if you can find better or more efficient ways to use your time, 
if you can fit more in to the time you have, then there'll finally be time to do everything that matters and you'll feel at last as though you have your life in, as he puts it, proper full working order. And what I want to say is that you won't, that there will always be more that feels like it matters than you'll have time to do. And that it will always in some sense feel like there are ways you should be using your time that you're not using it for. But I also want to try to persuade people that this seemingly incredibly depressing message when you let it sink in, when you let it permeate you a bit, is actually incredibly liberating and is the key to a different, more relaxing, but also more empowered uh, relationship with time. See, look, if you live to be about 80, as you heard before, you'll have had a little over 4,000 weeks of life. So it's not very long at all, even if you get that much. And yet here we are as humans in this unique situation where we can sort of conceive of infinity, of we can formulate limitless ambitions for our lives or feel the pull of limitless obligations that we need to think we need to fulfill. But at the same time, we have, you know, we're material creatures. We have this staggeringly limited time, limited attentional bandwidth, limited stamina, limited financial resources, all the rest of it. So really there's just an innate mismatch here, right? It's like a maths problem. You can ascribe the feeling of importance of something really mattering to far more things than you're ever gonna have the opportunity to do with your life. And that of course is before you look at our situation today where you know, thanks to technology, automation, intensification of economic competition, the gig economy, we're in this world of, eff of effectively sort of infinite inputs. So there's no limit really to the number of emails that you can receive or the number of demands the boss can make or for that matter, the number of exotic locales you might wanna visit. Um, and so if you respond to all that by doing what comes naturally, by trying to find ways to fit more in, or even if you take it to an extreme like I did in my years as uh, what I call, a, other people call a productivity geek, you know, trying to reshape your life and your to-do lists and your organizational system so that you'll finally find time for everything that matters. None of that's gonna work. It's gonna be like getting faster at climbing up an infinitely tall ladder, right? You'll get busier and you'll feel more stressed but you'll never get to the top. In fact, it's actually worse than that. You'll actually create more work for yourself to do. So for example, like the better you get at answering emails, and I learned this from bitter personal experience, so the more emails you end up receiving because you reply to things and they generate further replies and you get a reputation for being responsive to email. So more people email you. Whereas, you know, if you neglect your email, it's actually surprising how often people find alternative solutions to the problems that they were emailing you about in the first place. And I think what applies to email applies to the whole of life, right? You won't get on top of everything that feels like it matters just by working harder, by doing more, because that would entail escaping our human finitude. And that's, that's something we can't do for obvious reasons. I write in the book about an experience I had sitting on a park bench on a winter morning in Brooklyn, uh, where I lived at the time trying to figure out some ingenious schedule for the day that would enable me to get through what felt like an even more anxiety-inducing number of tasks than usual, and just suddenly realizing that none of this was ever going to work, that I was never gonna be able to marshal enough self-discipline and find exactly the right techniques to power myself through to this feeling of, of mastery, of control over time. And moreover, it became clear to me eventually that I'd been pursuing this fantasy, which I think is very widespread, as a kind of emotional avoidance, a way of trying to escape the reality 
of what it meant to be uh, a finite human, to find a place of control from which, in my case, I could face certain decisions about time, you know, big decisions about relationships and work and parenthood in a state of fearlessness and certainty, rather than seeing that fear and uncertainty were just part of the package and were inescapable. And I think ultimately, most of our method, attempts to master our time like this, to feel like we have our lives in full working order, as Arnold Bennett put it, are efforts to not feel what it's like to feel to be human, to try to feel limitless and infinite instead. And it doesn't work. It just makes us feel more stressed and it makes life less meaningful. As various Buddhist scholars have observed, I think the problem here comes not from the fact that we are finite humans, but from imagining that there might be a way out of the situation of being a finite human. So um, the American Zen Buddhist teacher, uh, Charlotte Jocko Beck, in a quote I use at the start of the book says, she's talking about life in general here. She says, what makes it unbearable is your mistaken belief that it can be cured. And I think the reason that this is ultimately a liberation and a source of power is that once you face the reality of being finite, a little bit at least, once you give up this impossible struggle to have no limits, that's when you get to pour your time and attention and energy into you know, finally getting around to doing a handful of things that count. I think it's really interesting to ponder, to reflect on how in so many cultures at so many different points in history, it would have been just completely baffling to talk and to think about time in the way that we mainly do today as something that we struggle with or have to fight against or need to use well or we're worried that we might be wasting because you know if you'd asked say a, a peasant in the early medieval English countryside maybe here in the North York Moors where I'm speaking tonight if you asked them if they felt like they had enough time left to get through a certain list of tasks I don't think that question would have made any sense because people lived then uh, and at many other times in history too, in a mode that um, anthropologists call task orientation, meaning they're so closely yoked to the natural world that the rhythms of the day just emerged from the tasks themselves, not from trying to line things up against a schedule or a timetable. There was just no reason in the first place to think about time as something that you used. You just sort of milked the cows when they needed milking and harvested the crops when they needed harvesting. And a productivity guru who had arrived, who would arrive and say, you know, why don't you do all the milking for the year in the next couple of weeks to get it out of the de out of the way, would have been run out of the village as a, as a lunatic. It made much more sense, perhaps, to even think about people in those days as just sort of living in time, perhaps even living as time, so just being a stretch of time with no sense of fighting against it or struggling to master it or getting out on top of it but just sort of living it moment to moment. Obviously, it would be really easy to romanticize the terrible lives of medieval peasants, which were really completely terrible in almost all ways. And I think we should try to return to that. Uh, and similarly, I don't mean to imply that most people are in any position to just sort of walk away from their impossible inboxes or ignore a boss who's making impossible demands of them. But, what I think we can hope to do, and the reason that I tried to write this book, and I think it could benefit us all a bit more, is to, it's just to sort of drop back down into reality a bit more, to see where we really inevitably are, and see how we've been engaged in a sort of impossible struggle with time, an attempt to do more than we possibly ever could do, or to balance competing desires or competing societal demands 
that simply can't be balanced. Um, to try to avoid making the tough choices with finite time that are just a sort of built-in uh, inevitability of, of being a human with finite time. And especially to stop attaching our sense of self-worth, our sense of having you know, justified our existence on the planet for the day to this sort of goal that we can never actually attain. Because I think when, then when you see where you are, you realize that all you can ever do and thus all you ever really need to do um, isn't to try to get a handle on time, get on top of everything, get your life in full working order. But in the words of Carl Jung, uh, to just do the next most necessary thing and then the next and then the next and then the next uh, until the final moment, which you no longer can. And at the end of writing this book, I guess I felt surer than I ever had that this is the way, like the only way to do your best to build the most meaningful life that is on the cards for you, not to try to wrestle life into submission, but just to be here in the only moment that it ever is and to do the next most necessary thing, which in my case right now is to stop talking. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you. Oh, Oliver, that was just wonderful. It made me think of all my wretched to-do lists before I go to sleep. <laughs> And the sort of insanity of the to-do list and the, and the kind of also the knowledge that you're never, ever going to get through it. And that the whole idea of it is that it's stuff that will be punted along. That was very, really inspiring. And I really look forward to reading your book.